One of the most formative experiences of my young adult life was a month that I spent with my dad in the Middle East in what was then occupied West Bank in Ramallah, just outside of Jerusalem. I've referenced that story before, different aspects of it several times. I don't think I've ever told this part of that story here before. Um, because, we were, because we were there as guests of an Arabic family in occupied West Bank and because they were a well-known and very connected family in that community... The dad had once been the mayor of Ramallah, for example, like they just and they were related to half the town. Um, because of that, we were we were made welcome into that community in ways that still leave me a little astonished when I stop to think about it. I mean, I was just such an entitled white twenty-something that I was just like, well, yeah. <laughs> and when I look back on how easily I accepted that as I don't know my right, the way it should be, just how things are. I look back on that now, I was like, oh, man, you, you had no idea. You had no idea what this community handed you, did you? I didn't. I really didn't. I know the simple explanation is that the trust that the Rantisi family had in that community was graciously extended to us. But that hardly does the job when I think about all the reasons that it could have been otherwise. I mean, for starters, we were white. Some of our group was from the U.S., not a nation generally known for being on side with the Palestinian people in this conflict, to put it mildly. Some of the group that we were a part of had what they understood to be sort of non-negotiable Christian understandings of the Middle East conflict that could fairly be understood as utterly at odds with the Palestinian experience of historic events. So there were lots of reasons why it could have gone otherwise. We were there to help if we could, and I think we were incredibly fortunate to have the whole experience facilitated by someone who had sufficient grace and maturity to know that if you really want to be helpful in a situation where you're not from the dominant culture or ethnic reality, you should ask what you can do. (laughs) And then when someone says, if you really want to help do this and do it this way, then you should do that. And that's, that's a good starting point, and we were given good direction in that. So that's what we were doing. And that took us right into the heart of Ramallah and its tradespeople. And so Abu George's carpentry shop became our second home. And his 16-year-old son, Riyadh, became our, sort of our pal, our daily companion in our work environment. And it is from Riyadh that I learned what remain some of the most abiding lessons that I know about the power of what I would call generational enmity. Riyadh's English was pretty good, which was great because my Arabic was non-existent. And uh, and sometimes after work, we would just just chat a bit. We'd just hang out. And during the day, if we had a little break, we'd come out of the coffee shop and we'd watch him like do wheelies on his bike up and down the street. Um, So we, we hung out with Riyadh a bit. And one time... Riyadh and I got talking about the sort of apparently intractable nature of this conflict that, that had his hometown under the constant occupation of Israeli armed forces, which was the norm at that period in West Bank. The family that we were living with were Arabic as well, uh, but the orphanage that they ran in their home and for which we were helping to construct a separate building was open to any kids who had lost their families in this conflict. Arab-Israeli didn't matter. And so maybe that's what made me bold enough to ask Riyadh if he had ever met an Israeli person that he found interesting or wanted to get to know. And when I asked that, his face just immediately darkened and he said, no, they are our enemies. 
And when I pressed a little as to whether there might be any other way to see someone from that nationality or that identity, he said there was not. This is what he had been taught his whole life, and it was true. End of story. It wasn't my place to question that, and I didn't. But when I reflected on my experience with our hosts, the Rontisi family, I knew that there was another way to tell that same story, and not just from a visiting white guy's perspective, but from a deeply embedded Arabic perspective. Our host, Adi Rantisi, could lay out in considerable detail the whole long history of that conflict, dates, names, details, make it clear that he thought the current reality of occupation was utterly unjust and completely unjustifiable, And he was also able to look at the kids orphaned by that conflict and see them as humans in need of love and shelter and nurturance, which was a more nuanced view than Riyadh had expressed. So somewhere along the way, the story that Riyadh knew as all Israelis are our enemies had been adjusted in the Rantisi context into one that, to me at least, looked better, more humane, more loving. Now, lots of perspectives when you tell a story like that, right? But Ari Rantisi was, among other things, an Arab Christian. Uh, it's not as rare an occurrence as many on this side of the ocean might imagine, and as I had imagined before I heard him explain otherwise. And for him, one of the main forces acting on that historic story of generational enmity was the teachings of Jesus, which included all people being those who carried the imprint of the divine even if they were labeled enemies in some particular human scheme of things, and that all people, as a result of that understanding, were worthy of love and care, even if they did have the structural label of enemy. I rather like, um, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Zen Buddhist teacher, who says of Jesus' teaching that we should love our enemies, that it's just a, such a brilliant teaching, because by the time you actually get to love someone, like they're probably no longer your enemy. <laughs> and so the order of ideas in love your enemies is important. It was about 40 years ago when I had that experience, and I have been thinking about it on and off ever since. Like, I did not have to go look anything up to write the story down. It's, it's very alive inside of my memory and, and the way I walk through the world with ideas present to me in a conscious way. Some questions that come out of that for me in our context. How does someone adjust a story like that without it sort of taking them apart? How do they work their way through the intricacies of family members that find that adjustment untenable? How do they operate, in this particular case, how do they operate in a town where half the population is related to them, the other half once voted for them to be mayor, but the vast majority can barely tolerate the choice that they're making? I think one of the reasons I can't get that story out of my head is because in one way or another, I have had the incredible privilege of walking with people doing that same sort of thing with their beliefs for several decades now. I can't claim to have a super tidy understanding or answer to that question about how one might adjust their story and not self-destruct, but I do feel like I'm starting to get some glimpses of possible themes. And since exploring what we believe is what we've stated we're here to do as a community, I thought what I would offer this morning is some of my musings on that, just for our consideration and for us to 
uh, I would hope, find in translation rather than lose in translation. First of all, I think that it's essential to acknowledge that we tell ourselves stories about ourselves and that our experiences, or rather, we tell ourselves stories about ourselves and our experiences that provide meaning-making frameworks for our lives. This is a thing we do. And I think it's essential to acknowledge, even if it's just internally, that we know that these stories that we tell ourselves are not completely true. They are almost certainly incomplete because there is no way for any of us as individuals to hold a complete picture of life you know, as it is. We, we simply do not have the purview or the capacity to do that. And even if we could, it would probably destroy us. I think we would probably be undone by the complexity and the apparent contradictions we encountered, at least at the idea level. So, we tell ourselves stories that work for us in our context, assembled from the raw materials that we have access to. Those stories are not to be denigrated. They are vital for our survival. They are vital to our thriving. They are an essential piece of our experience of life, including our happiness or lack of the same. And they are... Having said all of that, they are partial. They are not comprehensive. They are fallible. They are not big T true. (laughs) I think that's an important place to begin because without it, we may well find that we're unable to give ourselves permission to adjust our own stories. I had a couple of conversations just this week with people who were taught that either you had the story about God in particular that you were handed or you had a story in which there could be no such thing as mystery or divine or God. Like it was this or that. Only two options. And those two people have made rather different choices about what to do in response to that experience because they're very different people. But both of them are really struggling with giving themselves permission to adjust their story. And it would be, it seems to me, much easier for them to make progress if they had been taught to, like from, from the beginning, been taught to hold their stories more loosely, more open-handedly, less desperately grasped. Maybe, maybe it matters more that we have stories and are aware that we have them than that those stories have particular contents. Anyway, if we can turn that corner, we are, as a species, beings who tell ourselves stories about ourselves, and it's on the basis of those stories that we make meaning, and those stories are adjustable. If, if we can turn that corner, then there's another question that I think can be helpful. And that question is something like, am I telling myself the same story over and over again because it's the only one possible, or because it's the one I'm used to? And to put it another way, am I so immersed in my own confirmation bias that everything I see becomes evidence on the side of the story I'm familiar with, even when that story has ceased to be good at carrying meaning for me or of adequately accounting for my life experiences, for my changing knowledge as well as my experiences? You know that that God moves in mysterious ways, that little phrase? That can be an acknowledgement of our limited capacity for knowing, but it can also be a complete cop-out and lots of things in between. 
we can't know everything is a different core story than truth begets certainty with mystery sort of plugging the leaks. Those are not the same views of the world. Maybe this is kind of like, maybe this this illustration will be a total miss. Uh, You decide. Maybe this is kind of like that, you know, the check engine light on the dash of your car. (laughs) For those of us who drive cars of such vintage. If that light comes on, but the car still starts and it runs and it stops and it does all those good, you know, cars need to do this when you turn the key things, then we might take our time paying attention to it. One of my kids, who shall remain nameless, just took a piece of black electrical tape and put it over that part of the dash. <laughs> they, they no longer have a car. They, they, were not a, they knew they should not have a car. <laughs> but if the check engine light comes on accompanied by like a big clunk or a huge grinding sound or some like dramatic change or reduction in function, odds are pretty good like we're off to the repair shop, right? We're going to have a different response to that signal. <laughs> That's right. It, not until the, the noise drowns out the radio. Now it's time to go to the shop, right? The voice of experience. I won't even ask, Shereen. We can operate for a long time without addressing the check engine light on our stories if the world is cooperating, if the world still runs when we turn the key. But when things go bang, sometimes we just know it is time to look under the hood and find out what's going on. This is not a thing to ignore. And I realize this is an oversimplification, but it it might also be a pretty legitimate way of considering how so many religious communities aren't sort of bouncing back after the pandemic as anticipated. The, The bang of the pandemic, I think for a lot of people, provided time and impetus to reconsider beliefs or religious identity. And if the story said it's all or nothing, Lots of folks seem to be choosing nothing, at least when it comes to opting out of those collective expressions of religious identity. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? In any case, whether that connects with us or not, adjusting our stories is sometimes we can clearly see needs to happen. And honestly examining our relationship and behavior relative to the story we tell ourselves is one way we can troubleshoot that process. Am I still acting out the story I'm telling myself? So let's say, let's say we've done that. Let's say that we've taken the time to examine the story we presently hold or have held, and we realize that it's time for us to make some adjustments. So let, let's say we've kind of had experiences that might be summed up that way. I, I brought a show and tell uh, along for this part, which I don't very often do, but I thought today might be that day. This is, the, this is the shell of a guitar. <laughs> um, uh, among other things, a cautionary tale about why you shouldn't leave your guitar unhumidified. But um, most guitars, not ukuleles, because they're just so much gentler and kinder than guitars in many physics ways, but most guitars have a thing inside of the neck a metal rod inside the neck called a truss rod. And it, it's, I won't bore you with the physics of it, but it's there to counteract the incredible pressure that's generated by a set of tense metal wires, which on a normal acoustic guitar like this would be somewhere between 70 and 100 pounds of pressure. Like it's quite a bit of pressure on this neck. And so there's this metal rod in here to keep this, this wooden neck from turning into like a giant letter C from all that pressure. It's adjustable. <laughs> 
there's a little nut. On this guitar, it's right there. Some guitars, it's under a plate on this end, but either way, you can usually access it with an Allen key with a little wrench, and you can turn it. And when you turn it, it adjusts the curvature of the metal rod inside the neck, and it actually moves the neck. Like, you wouldn't sort of pick up a guitar generally and kind of go, yeah, that's, that, can, that can bend. Um, if you ever see some guitarists, you'll hear them use this as a technique. They'll play a chord, and then they'll actually push on the neck, and the whole chord kind of goes down and comes back up. So it does move. But we don't tend to think about that as especially movable. It doesn't look that movable when you look at it. But it is. You can adjust it. Here's the thing. <laughs> if you're going to adjust the neck on your own guitar, do a little bit of homework first, because you can also utterly destroy the thing. Like you, can, you can break it or strip it, in which case it's no longer adjustable. And the guitar is now, like this one, you know, an illustrative artifact, but not a playable instrument. But the, thing, the point I want to make from this particular little object lesson is that if you do take the time to learn how to adjust this yourself, one of the things you will learn is that it's best done almost always in small increments, like an eighth of a turn, a quarter of a turn of that nut at a time. And when you make those turns, if you're, if you're looking down the neck and going, what, what shape does that have? Is it straight? Is it curved the wrong way? Has it got a little bit of curve the way I need it to have to be playable? You give it that eighth of a turn and you look down it again, or better yet, you, you take an actual gauge and you measure the distance from the strings to the fretboard, it will have moved. It will have changed its curvature. Sometimes when you do that with a guitar, especially one that hasn't been paid adequate attention to, it, it sounds awful. Like, honestly, it, it squeaks, and it kind of creaks. Sometimes it almost moans. Um, all things that, uh, uh, even just talking about them make me twitch, right? But, it, but if we're careful, it can still move. And one of the curious things about that kind of an adjustment is that you make the adjustment, and you let it settle just a little bit. Maybe you kind of help it just a tiny bit, and then you play it again. Or you measure it again with these different critical points up the neck and go, what did that adjustment do? Did that make things better? You test it. And you test it in really like embodied, enacted ways. It feels to me like a pretty good metaphor for adjusting our stories. We can. We can adjust them ourselves. We can learn how to do that. We can learn how to do it in ways that are kind and effective and testable. And then, you know, if we kind of test it and go, I'm headed in the right direction here, but I'm not there yet, we can give it another quarter turn and test that. And sometimes we give it a, you know, collectively it gets a half turn and we're like, yep, too far. Because there is a sweet spot. And we turn it back. And then winter comes and the humidity changes. The environment changes and we're like, oh, need to turn that a different direction. The raw material, the environment, the, the circumstances are not what they were when I made that last adjustment. And it's okay. It's okay to adjust our stories. But it's worth remembering that sometimes we need to do it in small increments so we don't, you know, break our neck. All right. Peace, everybody. <laughs>